Great to be here with you on this Good Friday, and I never know what quite the greeting is to say, Happy Good Friday. I mean, that's a kind of a strange thing to say, uh, and yet uh, we call it Good Friday because of what it means for us. Um, thank you for all you who are joining us online and in person, and uh, tonight I, I want to take a look at what we celebrate each year and uh, on Good Friday and to do it with fresh eyes. And... Um, Tonight, I want us to look at something in particular. Um, Not just the actions of Jesus, but his heart for people and the narrative uh, of what happens in the last few days uh, of his life, the last day of his life. Um, Not just the things he did, but who did he love? Who did he show compassion to in this narrative? Tonight, we are here to talk about Jesus, but... Uh, as we start, we're going to talk about this guy first. Yeah, that's not Jesus. That's Obi-Wan Kenobi, who I think the creators of Star Wars intentionally tried to make him look like white Jesus, right? And so um, there's a reason for that, but I think it's a backwards reason, and, uh, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. This is Obi-Wan Kenobi, and if you're not a Star Wars fan, he is a Jedi. Uh, all the nerds in the room Please don't correct me with any things I get wrong, okay? But Obi-Wan is a Jedi, and they're kind of like space ninjas uh, who have supernatural powers. Um, they, can, they can use the force, right? But they also have a strict code of conduct, and this code includes a commitment to non-attachment. Jedi have to train themselves to let go of everything that they fear losing. They're to have no attachments. Don't form deep bonds or connections with others, that might lead you towards some, some mistake that you'll make. It'll keep you from doing the right thing in the moment. And they are the good guys. They're the good guys, but they, and they do have some serious powers, and they do fight for the, good, for the side of the good, but they stay away from attachments. They stay above the fray and the drama of real-life relationships. Okay? Then you have this guy. Yeah. Spoiler alert. For those of you who haven't seen the book of Boba Fett, I'm about to spoil it for you, but all you nerds have already seen it. Who am I kidding? Um, This here is Din Djarin. Did I say that right? Awesome. Upon hearing about uh, this Jedi code, um, this this Mandalorian, Din Djarin, for the first time we hear, he hears about this Jedi code of non-attachment. He says this, this is the opposite of our creed. Loyalty and solidarity are the way. This is what bonds him to, to Grogu, baby Yoda there. And look how cute he is. Who in here wouldn't, like this Mandalorian, do everything in your power to protect that little guy? And that's what Mando does. What does this have to do with Jesus? Well, there's been a lot of debate uh, over the centuries as to which uh, religious sect of Judaism that Jesus would have been most closely aligned with. Would it be the Pharisees? Would it be the Sadducees? Would it be the Essenes? Would it be the Zealots? I'm here to tell you he was a Mandalorian. And he wasn't a Jedi. Why? Why am I talking about this? Because Jesus did not stay above the fray. He didn't stay away from attachments. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we read Jesus' words, it's like, yes, I have come from the Father. And it's like very stoic and wooden and boring. And Jesus was not that way at all. He was real. He made himself vulnerable. He allowed himself to deeply love people and and be in deep, real relationships. 
Bible tells us that he was tempted in every way, that, that he wept over death of people that he loved, and he wept over people who had walked away from God. Jesus fully attached himself to this world and to its people, and he opened himself up to suffering. So when we commemorate Good Friday, that's what we're here to do. We're here to look at the suffering of Jesus how he willingly suffered for us. And tonight, we're gonna to do this by going together through what's called the Stations of the Cross. And this is a hundreds of year old practice where Christians use imagery and scripture to walk with Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to his burial in the tomb. And so I've got some images and, and some passages of scripture that we're gonna look through tonight. We're mostly gonna read scripture and I'll do a little bit of commentary on a few key things. But one thing I want you to look for in these who is Jesus showing love to, even in the midst of his suffering? Here's our first station, the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what Matthew says about the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus went from his last meal with his friends, with his disciples, and he went to the garden to pray. And here's what it says in Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. James and John, those are the sons of Zebedee. These are Jesus' three best friends he brings. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is not a robot programmed to come to earth to complete a mission. He's full of fear in this moment. He's full of hurt. He's about to be betrayed, denied, and mocked. He knows what kind of pain is awaiting for him at the cross. So what kind of love must he have for God to say, God, I will do whatever you want me to do? God the Father, I will do whatever your will is. What kind of love must he have for us that he, knowing what's on the other side of this journey, goes through with it anyway? Our next station, Jesus betrayed by Judas and arrested. One of his very own, one of his 12 closest disciples. Jesus didn't just endure physical suffering, right? He experienced the kind of suffering that you and I experience all the time, relational pain, the pain of betrayal, the pain of offering love and being rejected. Jesus went through all of it. Our next station, Jesus is condemned. Jesus is put on trial by the religious leaders, the, the, the Jewish council. And it's his claim that he is the Messiah, the anointed king of the Jews, that leads them to condemn him. It's this one claim. And they say, you're, you're guilty of blasphemy, which is worthy of death according to our law. You claim to be God's son. What more do we need to hear? Trial over. In our next station, Peter denies Jesus. I love this image because of the emotion on both of their faces what Peter is going through after he recognizes what he's done. And even though Jesus knew Peter was going to do this, how much does it hurt to have your best friend deny you? 
Again, he experiences rejection, denial from one of his closest three friends, and he knew it would happen. He told Peter this is going to happen. And Peter, he's in the moment now seeing things go downhill fast for Jesus, and he's like, oh no. If it's going downhill fast for Jesus, I might have to suffer alongside him. And so Peter denies being one of Jesus' friends and, and, and his disciple three times. And when he realizes what he's done, Matthew's gospel tells us that Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like you've turned your back on Jesus in some way, whether it's with your words or with your actions? I, I have, and I can, I can imagine what Peter was feeling in this moment because I've been there. But thankfully, we see later, after Jesus' resurrection, that, that Peter is forgiven and restored of this betrayal. And I thank God for that because it gives me hope that no matter how far and how fast I run from following Jesus, he forgives and restores. Our next section, our station. Jesus is judged by Pontius Pilate, and you see him there washing his hands on his little throne as Jesus is being led away. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. He was the Roman official placed in charge of this conquered land. He was there to keep the peace. And what that meant is that he was there to crush any rebellion that would threaten Roman rule over the people or land of Israel. His peace peace came by the sword. It came through violence. It wasn't peace at all. The people had rebelled before multiple times. And so he was there to make sure this never happens again. We will snuff it out immediately. And then along comes this this man who's being called the king of the Jews. Any king would be a rival to Caesar. He's already a threat. So Jesus is a threat, but now he has this crowd on his hand. Pilate has this crowd on his hands, this, this group shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And so he's thinking, well, how do I keep them happy so this doesn't boil over into a bigger deal and have a full-blown revolution on our hands. His own wife knows what is about to happen is unjust. She warns him, don't have anything to do with that man. She knows this is wrong. But Pilate is a politician. And politicians often ask this question, what's gonna be the easiest thing for me? Appease the crowd, give them what they want, And so he washes his hands as a symbol of saying, look, this isn't on me, this is on you guys. I don't have anything to do with this. Even though he's the one who has all the power to do what's right. I found this image and I thought it was pretty powerful. It's an image of a, a modern day politician version of Pilate. And please don't look at this through the lens of a Democrat or Republican lens. Uh, That's not what I'm trying to do here. But sadly, so much of what happens in the halls of power all over the world, not just in our country, is is politicians ask the question, what's best for me? What keeps the corporations that donate me money happy? What keeps me in power? And these motivations are all too familiar. As people who are supposed to do the right thing because it's the right thing, do what's best for themselves. And their actions and their inactions lead to those who are, that they're supposed to lead, that they're supposed to protect, being crushed by their decisions. Now, I'm not saying this to get us thinking politically tonight. At least not politically in the way that we think of politically, this binary of this party or that party, which is a false choice, by the way. But 
I, I do, I do want to say tonight that Jesus on the cross is a political statement. It absolutely is. He's saying, Rome, you wield the power of the sword to keep peace, but that's not the way of God. And here he is, God in flesh, the king of the universe, going to the cross and sacrifice and surrender, saying, this is the way of God. And every empire and nation and political movement and person and family have to bow down to my kingdom. And this is the way of my kingdom. I think it's such a powerful image of what's going on here. Pontius Pilate thinks, hey man, we're Rome. We're the baddest dudes in town. Who's, who's got power over us? And Jesus in his sacrifice and surrender says, I'm the king and I'm not threatened by you or your kingdom. The next image here, the next station, Jesus bears the cross. And I don't know exactly what the artist had in mind here, but it looks like this, this, this scene where Jesus is clinging to the cross, knowing it's both an instrument of his death and a symbol of his loving sacrifice for you and for me. Here's how John describes this station. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. And so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Sorry about that. I want to highlight a phrase there. We have no king but Caesar. This echoes Israelite history. It actually echoes all of human history. But for Israel, this is not the first time they're, they're accused of, of rejecting God as king. It's actually happened multiple times throughout the Old Testament narrative. But it's the very story of humanity. The very first rebellion recorded in the Bible is Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does that mean? It means they wanted the power to decide for themselves what was right or wrong. That is a job that only God is fit for. They wanted to be God. They wanted to be the kings and queens, the rulers of their own lives and the rulers of the world. This is the story of humanity. We've been competing with God to be the ones who get to run our own lives and run all the world. This is all of human history kind of wrapped up. And to be clear, these religious leaders have no love for Caesar. They hate him and his empire. But in this moment, they're faced with a choice. Do we honor God, which is probably going to put us in jeopardy, in danger? Or do we just get to control the outcome of this one and live to fight another day. And they choose their own destiny in, in multiple ways, but they just, they, they have this choice that they feel like they have to make because Jesus is going around saying he's the king of the Jews. At some point, the Romans are gonna crack down. At some point, the Romans are gonna say, enough, we will accept no rival kings, and they're gonna crack down on the Jews because that's Jesus' people, right? And so they, they say to themselves, if we got to get rid of him to save ourselves, well, I guess that's what we've got to do. It's a high-stakes version of the choices we make every day. Do I live as if Jesus is the king, or do I take control and do things my way? 
Because that seems easier, and I don't know how it's going to turn out if I trust Jesus. This next station, Jesus is helped by Simon. This man, Simon of Cyrene, we don't know much about him, but we know that Jesus continues to fall. He can't bear the cross anymore. He's been so beaten and brutalized by this Roman torture uh, system, and now he cannot continue to carry the cross anymore, and he needs help. And so the Romans force Simon of Cyrene to help him carry the cross. Okay, this next one is one that I don't normally uh, read during Good Friday, and it, it has blown me away in a way that I've never really understood before. Um, and, and God has definitely opened my eyes to the power of this passage. This is a station where Jesus meets the women of Jerusalem. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses. There's a longer section here, but I want to read a couple of verses here. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. And later he goes on to say this, For if if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? If, If this is what happens to me and my people when I'm here with them, what's going to happen when I'm not here with them? And this isn't Jesus just making a prediction, even though this prediction does come true. The the, the women of Jerusalem will weep because martyrdom is coming for Christians and Jews in the Roman Empire. The temple, about 35 years after this, is going to be destroyed as the Romans say, enough is enough, we're done with you guys. And more likely than not, husbands and sons are going to be the casualties of this. And Jesus is not just saying, here's a prediction I'm making about what's going to happen in the future. He's saying, even in my worst moment, even in the the most dark and physically painful and emotionally painful day that a human can experience, I'm worried about you. I have compassion for you and the weeping that's coming. It's powerful. It's powerful. You see the love of Jesus and how powerful it is. That even while he is being tortured and beaten and crucified, he's worried about other people. What kind of love is this? Can you receive it? His heart for for you and for me is is greater and deeper than we can possibly understand. Our next station. Jesus is nailed to the cross. Here's how Luke describes the station. It says, when they came to the place called the skull, They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Again, do you see the powerful love of Jesus? It's one thing to have compassion on the women of Jerusalem who are filled with love and grief for Jesus. But in the moment he's being nailed to the cross, he cries out for the very ones who are holding the hammer. Father, forgive them. If you're here with us in person or online this Good Friday, and you think that you're too far gone for God to save you, for God to love you, for God to restore you, let these words of Jesus put that to rest once and for all. If his heart for these men who are in the process of literally literally murdering him is one of forgiveness, then no one is too far gone. No one can out-sin God's grace. 
You can bring the very worst of yourself to the foot of the cross, and Jesus will meet you there just like we sang with mercy in his eyes. I love that verse. Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. His love just keeps on coming. It keeps on coming in the narrative as, as we see this, that Jesus promises his kingdom to the good thief. See, there were two criminals who were crucified with Jesus, and the Gospels record these events slightly differently. Uh, so, so putting them together, what we have is two criminals who are hung on the cross. They're both Jewish people who know uh, why Jesus is being crucified, and they're mocking him. They're making fun of him for the claims that he's somehow the king. How is the king getting crucified? Especially in that world, the, the, the idea was that God can't suffer. And so clearly he's not from God, and he's not God, because look at him. But something happened along the way. One of them has an awakening where he realizes that Jesus actually is who he says he is. He, he, he believes he's the Messiah. He's God's anointed king. And he silences the other criminal. And I don't know what changed in him, but he silences the other criminal. And he says this, don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what we, our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Again, the incredible love and forgiveness of Jesus on display. This man went from mocking him to confessing him, and Jesus said, that's enough. In his final hours and pain, he's comforting this man with the message that because he has faith, he will be with Jesus in his presence after this awful day is over. Our next station. Jesus speaks to his mother and the beloved disciple. Jesus' mother is there, and as we heard this past Sunday, Mary of Nazareth, this absolute giant of our faith who has had her whole life turned upside down to give birth, to raise, to disciple, and then become a disciple of her son Jesus, the Messiah. At this point in her life, her husband has died, and it seems like there's no uncles around who, who have stepped up to help like the Jewish law has required them. At this point, it doesn't look like any of Jesus' brothers are following him, but later they do. We've heard multiple times in our, our series about the women who gave us Jesus. Women only had value based on who they're married to and the sons they give birth to. And here's how Jesus describes, uh, or sorry, here's how John describes this station. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom Jesus loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. I don't think Jesus actually needed to say this to John, but he had to be sure. He had to make sure his mom would be taken care of. John here is talking about himself. He refers to himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved, because again, he's one of Jesus' inner circle, one of his three best friends. And at this point, they are closer than brothers. And on this day, John became a true son to Mary from that point on. And he actually became an example for all of us who call ourselves disciples. When we belong to Jesus, we are family. We care for one another. We see the love of Jesus on the cross and we extend that love to one another. 
our next station. Jesus dies on the cross. Let's just sit with this image for a second. Here's how Luke describes this station. It was now about noon. Sorry. And darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain at the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. All creation is grieving. The sun stopped shining because the Son of God is about to stop breathing. And then Jesus is placed in the tomb. Matthew describes it. As evening approached, there came a rich man from uh, Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own tomb that he had cut out of the rock, and rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Sorry, go back. So that's it. Those are the stations of the cross. That's the story from garden to tomb. It's both heartbreaking and beautiful. The worst day in the life of our Lord became the most important day in all of history. It's the day that uh, Isaiah the prophet foresaw when he said uh, about the coming of the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we, lay, we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. At the cross, Jesus bore all of our sin. He bore every thought, word, and action that has pulled us away from loving God and loving others. But Isaiah tells us he also bears our pain. He took on the fullness of the human existence. He suffered so that that he can be present with us in our sufferings. And it was his amazing love that compelled him to go through all of this, to bear our sin and to bear our pain. So this Good Friday, what do we do with all of this? First, we, we give thanks. The love of God shown to us by Jesus is freely given. It's not something we can earn. So we give thanks and praise to him. And we're going to do that shortly as we sing and we take communion together. But the best way we can give thanks is by extending the love of Christ. 
Yesterday for um, our social media, I reflected on Maundy Thursday about how Jesus, before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, he shared his last meal with his disciples. And a lot happens in these chapters of John 13 through 17, where Jesus starts by washing his disciples' feet. An act of servanthood. Why is the king, the anointed one, why is he washing our feet? What kind of God is this? What kind of love is this? And he eats a meal with them. And, and, he, and he tells them what's going to happen. He, he, he's, this is where I'm going. I'm headed to the cross. And so in that time... He says a lot of words. If he had any parting words, anything that he wanted to say to them, the most important words he could get out of his mouth before he starts to head to the cross, what does he say? He gives them a new command. Love one another as I have loved you. This is how the world will know you're my disciples, if you love one another. He doesn't say yell at people or preach at them until they believe what you believe. He doesn't say try to grab power and authority so you can make the world more Christian. No, that's how Rome does things. That's not how Jesus does things. That actually contributes to the whole backwardness of human history where we try to become the kings and queens of our own lives and dominate the world, where we we lie, we cheat, we steal, and we employ violence so that things will go our way. No, on the cross, Jesus took all of that rebellion and violence on himself and said, enough. If you want to know God, if you want to be my people, that old way has to die. And the new way is love. So the best way that we can worship Jesus this holy week and every week and every day is to love people. This is how we honor the sacrificial love shown by Jesus on the cross. We love as he loved us. Let that be the thing that we take away from this Good Friday. Let that be the very best worship we can offer, is love for everyone that God brings on our path. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and they're going to lead us in some worship. And during this first song, we actually have three tables set up around the room, and we've got some... um, some folks who are serving communion. We're going to do it a little differently. It's, we still have the uh, little two-in-one cups if you prefer that, but we actually have some bread with flavor for you tonight. And so uh, our people serving will be wearing masks and gloves. Just make sure everything's sanitized and all of that. But um, we want you to come up during the song as you're worshiping to get the bread and the cup, and then we'll take it together between the songs. We do this to remember what Jesus has done. And we don't do it as individuals. We do it as community. We're proclaiming that we are his people. We're proclaiming that just as he has loved us, we commit to love one another because that is how we honor him best. Pray with me. Jesus, we remember you. We remember that your body was broken. We remember that your blood was shed. And we remember that you didn't have to do it. So we thank you and praise you for this love that you have for us that we can't comprehend and we even have trouble receiving, God. It's it's too much. We don't deserve it. Jesus, we, we remember you. We remember how, while all the world seeks to dominate, 
coerce. You lay down your life. You sacrifice. You love. God, help us to know you more. Help us to follow you faithfully. Help us to love one another. We need you. We need your spirit. And tonight, as we close in worship, God, continue to remind us more deeply than we've ever experienced. Continue to remind us of your love, that you would take up our sin and our suffering, that your love compelled you to do this, and that your love gives us life. We love you and we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.